0: I have been noticing lately in young people, mm-hmm. like under 30, who most would say, oh, this new generation, they are completely incapable of answering the question, what does it mean to be white? And when you bring all of that collective lack of any critical thinking or awareness into the water and you have to be in that water, right. like, you know that most white people can't answer that question. right? And if I can't hold what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. I'm Leila Saad
1: and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question, too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. We're here for season two of the podcast. We've got a whole new look for you, and I'm really excited that our very first episode today is with somebody whose work really has meant a lot to me and has really been something that I reference a lot. I'm talking about Dr. Robin D'Angelo and her work on white fragility. So Dr. D'Angelo is Affiliate Associate Professor of Education at the University of Washington. In addition, she also holds two honorary doctorates. Her area of research is in whiteness studies and critical discourse analysis. She's a two-time winner of the Students' Choice Award for Educator of the Year at the University of Washington's School of Social Work. She has numerous publications and books, including What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy, which I have read this year. It's a brilliant book. In 2011, she coined the term white fragility in an academic article, which has influenced the international dialogue on race. Her book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, was released in June of 2018, and it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. In addition to her academic work, Dr. D'Angelo has been a consultant and trainer for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast, Robin. Thank you so So, much. So good to have you here. So we're going to get into a lot of interesting conversations today. We were just speaking about something that we're both itching to talk about just before we hit record. But before we dive in there, we're going to start with our very first question that I ask every guest, which is about who are the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey?
0: I'm going to start with my mother, and not because she influenced me in a direct social justice way, but because she died when I was a child. She was 37. I was 11. She died of leukemia. And at that time, you actually didn't talk about cancer. We were told, my sisters and I were told, not to tell anyone that our mother had cancer. And up until the day she died, we were told she was getting better, and then after she died, we weren't to talk about it. Obviously, it was a traumatic experience, but I think what has really influenced the work that I do is that I recognized very early that there's a relationship between silence and suffering that there was suffering going on and we weren't to speak of it, which only intensified that suffering. So there's this elephant in the room and it's called white supremacy. And we are suffering from it in different ways. And I think it's the biggest elephant of all the elephants. And by God, I'm going to talk about it. And within that, I'm going to talk about the hardest part for white people, which is internalized superiority. Right. So if you've been in a lot of these kinds of workshops and educational forums, there's a lot of like, well, what do white people lose? And, you know, we need to gain our roots and we gave up our ethnic identity. You know, maybe that works for somebody. But white folks are we're wily. We'll do whatever we can to get out from under owning our positions and our investments in them right? And so I don't want to go to what I've lost or the victimization. I want to go to what's the hardest to look at. And that's that from the time I took my first breath, even before I was born, the forces of white supremacy were operating on me. And they basically told me, you are superior. And that message circulated and circulates 24-7, 365. And I want to talk about it. (laughs) It's not talking about it protects it. So I would say that ancestor. And then there are two black women in particular that were incredible mentors to me. They never gave up on me. I mean, I started as a clueless, classic, white progressive liberal who thought I knew everything I needed to know because I was a vegetarian. I just was classic in that way. And so I applied for a job to teach other white people how to be open-minded. And I just was in for the most profound learning of my life on every level. But those two women I was working side by side with, and they, they challenged me in a way I want to call loving accountability, right? They loved me. They held out compassion for me. And they also held me accountable. And I think the reason they were able to stay in with me and not give up on me is not because I didn't run racism at them. Because, of course, I did and I still do. Right. But because of the way I responded when it surfaced. And I always struggled to see it, to incorporate the lessons they were offering me, and then to grow and do different and do better. And because they saw that, they hung in with me. What were their names? Their names are Deborah Terry Hayes and Darlene Flynn. My book that you mentioned, uh, What Does It Mean to Be White, is dedicated to those two women. There were, of course, many other people of color who were powerful mentors, but they, I think, were just the strongest for me in the most long term in terms of a relationship. Charles Wright Mills, The Racial Contract, was really a powerful read for me. I will admit that I have never been able to get through Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That is a huge admission. (laughs) You know, it's just like, I can't get through it. The racial contract, I just consume. There's certain books you just drink it down. And he's a black sociologist. I I believe he's still living. But he talks about white supremacy as the social contract that underwrites all other social contracts. And yet it's the only social contract that is not named. So we name democracy, we name capitalism, we name socialism, fascism, and we don't name white supremacy, which underwrites all of them.
1: Right. It's really, really powerful. And when it is named, it's named as this sort of very fringe, very extreme, very rare occurrence and not the, as you said, the social contract that underlies everything
0: else. Right. It's looked at as an event. I have a quote, racism is a system not an event. Mm. And we we look at it as a kind of an event driven, right? It it occasionally occurs but only, you know, by bad people. Right. And we can get into that, but I think the way that mainstream culture defines racism couldn't protect it more effectively. Right. It's just a perfect way to protect the system of racism is to reduce it to individual acts. That must be intentional right. and are meant to uh, hurt people across race. Right. And that is why basically nobody's racist. Right. You know, even Richard Spencer is not gonna own being racist. Right. right.
1: It's so interesting hearing about the ancestors, the living and the transition who've influenced you on your journey. With your mother, it was about what not to do, right? How the silence actually creates the suffering how not speaking this thing that we know is so terrible yeah what is this idea that not speaking it will protect us from it yeah right and it doesn't in the same way as you've said you made that understanding between that's exactly how it is with white supremacy not speaking it doesn't make it go away doesn't make it not hurt people and then with the two black women who you named and i'd love to get some links to link to their work if they have any work in there, and we'll include them in the show notes, it sounds like they were relentless in keeping you accountable from a place of love for themselves first.
0: Yeah. And And for their own liberation, right?
1: For their own liberation and not from a place of martyrdom or from a place of walk across my back. What did that teach you about doing anti-racism work, especially as a white person?
0: You know, it's really similar for white people in the sense of doing this for our liberation, right? So there are three top questions I get whenever I give a talk. I don't like any of them, (laughs) but one of them is going to be some version of how do I tell my coworker about their racism? How do I tell my family about their racism? And I have learned to just pause and look at the person and say, well, how would I tell you about yours? right because the question presumes that it's it's not me and i need to go forth and wake all all these other white people up right. and when i'm in those moments of some other white person has said something and everybody's cringing but nobody says anything i think about it as this is about my healing because my silence is not healthy for me it colludes with white solidarity it upholds white supremacy it protects this person's, you know, it privileges their momentary feelings of embarrassment over freaking racism, right. right? And the outcome of racism. And I hope they shift as a result of my speaking, but I can't control that. I have to speak because that's how I heal my conditioning to collude, right? And so I guess I think about it in that way. Yeah. And I'd like to I like to assume that when Deborah and Darlene were speaking, it was like to not collude with their internalized oppression and their uh, conditioning to protect and keep white people comfortable. Right. Because one, it's safer, right? Right. And so, yeah, I think it's a really empowered thing to do for everybody.
1: I really love that shift in perspective, both For myself as a black person and for, I know that there are many white people who listen to this podcast, for them to hear, it's actually not about performing, I need to show up as an ally, so I need to do this because I I need to be that ally, but rather it's for me to be in integrity and not collude with, with white solidarity. I have to say something regardless of how it's taken, regardless of how it's received or not received. I have to do it for me, for me to be in integrity. That's really powerful.
0: Well, thank you. And, and, you know, for just that moment, that person also had to be accountable for what they just said, right? right. Whether they liked it or not. I mean, that's kind of a, another benefit of it, right? Right. But yeah, mostly it should, it should be for me.
1: And I also said it, it was helpful for me as a Black person. I know that as Black people and people of color, when we... Hold white people accountable, that we're putting ourselves in a very vulnerable position because what can happen is white fragility, a term which you have coined. <laughs> so I would love to go into what is white fragility. Give us the very brief definition, and then if you can give some examples of how it shows up.
0: I think about it as the inability for white people to handle any kind of challenge to our positions, our perspectives, our assumptions, our behaviors, right, racially, that it results from several different dynamics. One is, I think more and more, being white is means not having to bear witness hmm. to the pain of racism on people of color and to not have to ever be held accountable for the pain I've caused people of color. And so because I move through a society in which I'm not held accountable and in which I'm deeply separated from people of color, so I don't bear witness to their pain, I haven't built the capacity to handle like how uncomfortable that is, right? right. how unsettling that is. That's one piece. Another piece is straight up internalized superiority. You will defer to me to use a kind of a harsh metaphor, you will step off the curb when I walk by. You will not look me in the eye. You will stay in your place and I am in my place. So so to challenge me is to, again, if I may, is to be uppity, right? right? I think that's inside of us too, right?
2: Yeah.
0: I think also inside of us is a sincere wish to not cause harm, so then there's guilt, and I mean, this is what makes white people so freaking irrational. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Uh, <laughs> Maybe just tiny bit. <laughs> you just put all this together, throw in right. a little individualism, and then throw in a little universalism, and right. you mess, right? Right. And yet, it's not a, it's not an innocent or benign mess. It's a highly effective, right way to maintain the racial hierarchy in our positions within it. So the fragility part was to capture how little it takes for white people to melt down. There may be white people listening right now who are upset because I'm generalizing about white people. Right. Right. And if I just knew how they speak four languages and, you know, their parents this, then I would know that they're different. right? Right. So it doesn't take much to cause us to erupt in umbrage, But the impact of that umbrage, it becomes weaponized, as as I know you know, because it marshals behind it the weight of history and institutional control and legal authority, right? right? And so so it's a weaponized tears and defensiveness.
1: Right. It's really destabilizing to be on the receiving end of it. Only imagine the gaslighting. Right. Because it's that you kind of like, okay, I kind of see that you're trying to do the right thing, but also, wow, this is so abusive or violent or manipulative. And what it does is it makes me then question, am I doing it? Right. Or am I being irrational or am I, you know, blowing this out of proportion? It's incredibly destabilizing. The fact that you use the word fragility is just, there's something about it that's so poignant to me about it because the actual way that white fragility shows up is very
0: violent. You know, I'm just thinking, and I hadn't thought of this when, I, when it kind of came out of my mouth in a moment of frustration. Again, it's not fragile at all. No, it's no. yeah. like shattered glass. Yes. You know, we just shatter and then we just cut. Right. With those shards. Right.
1: And so... I would love to hear about you getting to reflect back on your own white fragility, you know, knowing the journey that you've been on in this work, where you started from. Looking back now, how did you see it showing up for you? And how maybe does it still show up for you?
0: Fragility less. And I I think there's something about just the convergence of my background that, that had me hanging there. Like, I mentioned that I was hired to do this diversity training. And we started with 40 trainers, about half of them white. And by the end of the contract, I was the only one left, oh. right? So there is something that enabled me to hang in there. Honestly, I think it's my class background. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how I see my race and class intersecting. I could name my racism probably easier than white fragility because I didn't have a lot of it. So here's a moment. We get hired. This big group of trainers is hired to go forth and do this huge contract, right, on racial equity training. And we have to go through a five-day train-the-trainer ourselves, right? right? This room filled with all these people who just got hired to do this big contract because an organization had been sued for racial discrimination. Okay. So they required every employee to have 16 hours of mandated diversity training. Yeah. And there were 5,000 employees, so they needed to hire all these people to go out and do these trainings. Right. I'm like, oh, I can do that, you know? Right. Like all the other white people who got hired. And so we go through this five-day train, the trainer ourselves, and by the afternoon of the first day, the shits hit the fan, right? Right. And it was so tense in that room, and I can remember the white people just turning to the people coming and saying, okay, so this is where you teach us about racism. Like, I literally thought, okay, now they're going to teach me about racism. And they looked at us and said, oh, hell no. You know, Mm no. I don't probably have to explain to you, but maybe to some of your listeners. That is not our job. I mean, and I also want to point out the lack of humility that we have as white trainers. We just got hired to do a job that we're basically saying we're not qualified for with no hesitation to say that we aren't qualified for. Right. This is the mediocrity white people get away with. Right. right, and yet claim that you're not qualified. Right, and I I remember being so angry. Like, well, how am I supposed to know? And people were arguing, and and then this white woman yells out into the room. All the white racists raise your hand, and all a whole bunch of white people raise their hands. And mm-hmm. I was looking on going, okay, uh, clearly this is the party line. I mean, I'm astute enough to know that, but. I'm not racist. I'm not
1: racist.
0: (laughs) I'm not racist. And I didn't raise my hand. And I went home, you know, thinking, well, I I was the good one. Right, right. And I look back and I think, what a smart move she made. Just like that thing. She surfaced where all the white people were in their understanding of what it meant to be racist. Right. And what I was showing is I had no idea of what racism was. So she exposed us so the people of color could look and say, okay, that one over there, I don't know, that's an example. It's okay. what,
1: I'm smiling because... I can imagine in your mind, you were like, well, I have now shown myself as the only safe white person in here. And in reality, what happened was the opposite, which is she has no idea the harm she is causing. She has no idea about what's actually going on. And that is so reflective of so many people who are coming into my work, who are coming into your work, who just don't have that understanding. You talk in your book about the good-bad binary. You tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. And let me just say, I mean, the very things that we think are showing that we get it are rarely convincing. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, I think that I'm showing you I'm down and you're rolling your eyes, right? right.
1: And this is why I speak. Probably that confusion of why is she rolling her eyes?
0: Yeah, the very things I think... Show that I get it or what right. don't. And so this is why I spend time in my presentations, like breaking down all of the evidence white people give for why they're not racist and how ridiculous that evidence actually is. Right. And how it rests on a definition of racism as individual conscious acts of meanness. Oh, and racists apparently can't handle proximity to people of color. Right. That is probably the number one piece of evidence is some version of my proximity. Either right. a family member, I work in a diverse environment, and, and that, that's really revealing. Well, what do I think racism is? Right. Or I mean, racist, that my evidence that I'm not racist is that I have proximity. Okay, well, then that must mean a racist can't have proximity. So let me ask you, Layla. Could a racist have proximity to you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Hell yes, right? I mean, your life would probably be a lot more comfortable if a right. uh, racist couldn't have proximity to right, you. Right. It's just silly. The good bad binary is connected to that. It's this idea, and I, I see it as coming out of the challenges of the civil rights movement in the US, where what happened for people, white people in the North, is suddenly all these images were televised. and in all these, you know, living rooms across the U.S., you see images of black people being beaten at lunch counters and right. dogs sicked on them. And I think there was a kind of shock for a lot of white people. Same shock we feel today when the same things that are going on have always gone on, but now they're videotaped. Right. Right. So you tell me, man, I got, you know, they called the cops and I didn't do anything. And I'm like, well, you probably did do something. Right. 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 Well, now you got a video. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I don't think these incidences are increasing. I just think we can now record them and document them. But suddenly it became very bad to be racist. Like that, that what became the archetype of a racist. is mm-hmm. some Southern person in a white hood beating somebody. Right. And so it became very bad to be racist. And if you were good, you weren't racist. So they became mutually exclusive, Right. Good, nice people cannot be racist. I mean, if you look at, again, how white people respond, it would appear that we can't hold that you could be a good person, a nice person, and perpetrate racism. And yet,
1: Me and White Supremacy, my book, is actually for those good, white, liberal, progressive people who would self-identify as definitely not racist, Definitely, yes. you know, believe we are all one race, the human race, definitely believe that we've been all created the same and we don't even see color. The harm that is perpetrated by people who self-identify in that way cuts so much deeper. Sometimes I get really weird emails from very right-wing, very extreme people who are commenting on my work. I don't even read it. I open it. I see what it is. I delete it, right? doesn't affect me. It's when I'm in spaces and places with people who they believe they are safe, they believe that their ideals and their values make them an ally, and perhaps we've developed some level of trust, or there's just a kind of feeling of harm isn't going to be done here, and inevitably it is. That always cuts so much deeper, and it's so hard for, as you said, classic liberals to understand why it cuts deeper. What do you now understand about why it cuts deeper?
0: And I don't know if you've heard me say, I think I say it in the book, I actually think white progressives, and I don't mean Democrat versus Republican, no. but you know, any white person who's just, oh, you know, it's not me or it's less me. Or I think we cause the most daily hostility and toxicity in the environment for people of color, particularly those who are working and living in primarily white spaces. Yes. And maybe the example is that hopefully your listeners know who Richard Spencer is, but he's kind of the, the head of the alt-right movement. And I can only imagine as a black woman to run into a Richard Spencer potentially could be terrifying. And yet odds are on a daily basis, you're not going to run into Richard Spencer. Right. On a daily basis, you're going to deal with me. Right, and the degree to which I think I'm good to go for all these nonsensical reasons I'm going to give you that I'm good to go. One, I'm going to be- Vegetarian. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) My second cousin married a black man. I was in Teach for America, you know, just on and on. One, I'm going to be completely complacent. So I'm not going to be involved in any way in my continual growth. Every moment that I push against the messages of white supremacy, they're pushing right back on me. I can never like relax and just say, you know, it's not happening, right? So one, I'm going to be completely complacent. And two, I'm going to, when the topic comes up, my energy is going to go into making sure you know that I'm not racist. That's where my energy is going to go. And if you push back on that, it's going to go into full-blown white fragility, hurt feelings, defensiveness. How dare you assume I would be racist? You don't know me right? I, you um, know, the
1: contents of my heart, whatever, you know, just so many reasons. There's so many reasons we could
0: live. Or I start to cry. I, I feel so bad. So now you have to absolve me or I begin to avoid you. You're going to get punished in a range of ways, right? right. For having done that. And so you may not do it again. And then I may assume, well, so everything's fine. Fine, right. What's really happening is, We have nowhere near the authentic relationship I think we have, because I have conveyed to you that I cannot go there with you. I can't hold that conversation. So the gaslighting you mentioned, if you put all of that together into the water, it's just the water of whiteness, right? right? Where you can't bring your authentic self. You can't talk to us about what you're experiencing, and that works great for us, right? I mean, I'm definitely going to claim you as my diversity cover, right. as long as you don't fundamentally challenge me. Because when you do that, you have a personal problem. Right. It's a really powerful form of, I think, every, everyday white racial control. And I have been noticing lately in young people, mm-hmm. like under 30, who most would say, oh, this new generation, they are completely completely incapable of answering the question what does it mean to be white and when you bring all of that collective lack of any critical thinking or awareness into the water and you have to be in that water right like you know that most white people can't answer that question right and if i can't hold what it means to be white i cannot hold what it means not to be white It's so
1: interesting you're talking about this. Before we hit record, we were talking about where I live. So I live in the Middle East. I was born and grew up in the UK. I live there. I've actually lived here more now than I've lived in the UK, but I was completely raised in the sewer that is white supremacy. And it has impacted the way that I see myself in ways that I'm still healing from. So you talked about internalized superiority that white people have as a black person, I absolutely have internalized inferiority. And it comes out in all these weird ways where, you know, I have imposter syndrome. I don't think I deserve to take up space. I question myself constantly. And so when you were talking about how young white people are not able to answer this question of what it means to be white, I know for myself from a very young age, I had to understand the question of what it meant to be black and Muslim. My daughter, I will say I have two kids. My daughter's a bit elder. My son is younger still, so we're not having those conversations yet. We've definitely had conversations around race. She goes to a school that has kids from every nationality basically around the world. And yet we still have these conversations because I'm a third culture child. I did not grow up in the culture from which my parents are from. She will likely not grow up and live in the culture that you know, my parents come from, she could go anywhere in the world and she will have to understand this is how the world sees you as a black person. It's not right. It's not okay. And these are the ways in which you can advocate for yourself and speak for yourself, but you have to understand that that's there. And so it's really interesting because we recently went on a family vacation for about a month and a half around Europe. And it's the longest my kids have ever been in Europe. And they saw, especially my daughter who's nine years old, she saw a number of things that were just like, wow, the things mom has been saying to me are actually true. These things do exist. You know, She saw waiters overlook us or kind of like give us the cold shoulder. She saw at breakfast one day at a hotel, a woman, after I told her we were in a line to do something, just sort of reach over me and do what she wanted to do, ignore the fact that I was ahead of her. And because I had prepared her by having these conversations prior to these incidents, we were then able to have the conversation around why did this happen. Now, mm-hmm. the you know, with the lady at the breakfast, if you had asked her, oh yeah, did you do this because you think that you're better, that you're superior?" she would have absolutely said no." No, no, no. yeah you know but her actions showed i'm going to ignore the fact that you've politely explained to me that we're in a line and just reach over you and do what i want to do because i'm entitled to because i'm white yeah and so that sense of superiority you know is something that i just want so many white people to understand that at a conscious level if asked most white people will say no i don't think i'm better than anyone else in fact i Struggle with my self-confidence. I have a lot of self-doubt. But when it comes to their positionality with people of color, especially black people, there is this huge sense of superiority that comes out in these really strange ways.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't have to be conscious. I mean, this is the other piece, right? right. And so one it is this idea that to say that that one has white privilege or benefits from the system of racism... A lot of white people think that means you're saying white people don't suffer, don't face barriers, don't feel pain. And, and no, of course we face barriers and of course we suffer, but we don't face that barrier. And right. that barrier is huge. Not facing that barrier helps us face the ones we do have. Right. And other people dealing with that barrier, if you will, also helps me through my life, right? right. So well, that's really important. I think for us to understand, again, I repeat, it's not saying we don't suffer face barriers, right? I would ask any white person listening who has another identity, a salient identity that's oppressed, they're queer, they're women, they have a disability, how does being white shape how you experience queerness, how you experience womanness, how you experience your disability, right? could you look anyone in the face and say to be poor and black and poor and white is the same experience, please. But there's another piece in here, right? So I guess one piece is unconscious bias. And this is why even somebody who calls the police because somebody's sitting at a Starbucks without ordering a coffee is going to insist that, you know, their race had nothing to do with it. Right. Right. But there's no way I'd get the cops called on me for that. Right. Right. But also part of being white is just the entitlement to not to attend to impact. Let's imagine that woman would have reached over anybody. Let's imagine she's kind of rude and domineering and she would have reached over anybody. When she reaches over you, the impact is racism. And this was a lesson that Deborah, I mentioned Deborah Terry Hayes, really helped me with. So we went to lunch one day. And she said, Robin, you're always talking over me and that is your racism. And I was like, no, it's not. It's Mm -hmm. not my racism. I talk over everybody, Mm -hmm. you know. I had this classic idea that if I do it to everybody, it's the same racism. Right. She hung in there with me. She kept saying, when you do it to me, because I've spent my life being talked over, being rendered invisible, fighting to speak, fighting to be heard. And part of your... Your whiteness is that you don't have to notice the impact from your position as a white person, if that makes sense, right? So the example i use use is, let's think about a cisgender man. He always raises his voice when he debates. Okay, great. You raise your voice to me as a woman? There's a very different impact because there's a history we're bringing into that room, and it's a history of harm. And so you raise your voice at me and that may feel very threatening and intimidating. And I would like to think that as a man, you're paying attention to that.
2: Right.
0: And you know, I'm speaking to a woman now. And so there's a really different dynamic here. I mean, is that so hard? Is that so hard to just kind of pay attention? Right. You know, like, okay, but, but she's reaching over a black woman now. And you know what? You don't get to indulge yourself in your personality if you want to be attentive to challenging racism. It's the same with introverts. Right. Well, I'm an introvert. I never speak in groups. Great. You don't speak in this group? <laughs> in other words, you don't speak up when we're trying to talk about racism. I'm sorry. The impact is you're, you're upholding racism.
1: This is you... so... Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, Lord, so The <laughs> point that you're making is so salient because I think so many people who hold white privilege do lean back then on their personality to explain why they have done what they have done. And it's a very neat and tidy cover that protects them from having to look at the actual historical context that's being brought into the interaction. I know many people would hear what you're saying and think, well, no, why, why do I have to like walking on eggshells around people of color? Why can't I just relax? Why can't I just show up as me? I want to be authentically me. And there is something about that that is so, I think, attractive as an argument to so many white people, that it's about authenticity. It's about showing up as their true selves. And it's this really clever way of being able to ignore the impact of what happens to people of color. Yeah, Yeah. go a little bit deeper on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's a question that has never failed me in my efforts to uncover, how does this keep getting reproduced? Individually, every white person is going to tell you I'm against racism. Right. And yet, by every measure, we have racism, right? right. It's like the, so, the book, um,
1: Racism Without
0: Racists. Oh, Eduardo Bonillo Silva. I yes. love that. And so the question for me, when I'm trying to figure out a piece of racism, is not, is it true or is it false? Is it right or is it wrong? The question is, how does it function? Mm. So how does it function when white people, when you bring up the impact this is having on you and they move to, it's just my personality, or they move to, gosh, do I just have to walk on eggshells? That question functions to, one, prevent any engagement with impact, but also to say, I'm going to continue to engage in, in my most comfortable mode which basically, I don't care if it, the impact on you is racism. I'm not going to be careful. Right. right. I am not in any way going to give up anything. Right. It just so clearly functions to protect the status quo because the status quo is racism. Right. If I'm telling you that when you say that phrase to me, it completely invalidates me, and you say, well, I don't care. It's my favorite phrase. Like, seriously? <laughs> Uh, is that that who we want to be? So that's one thought I had, but also this is going to be a little bit hard for some white folks. My my psychosocial development was inculcated in the water of white supremacy. Yes. There's no space outside of it. So what I think of as my personality developed in a society in which white supremacy is the foundation. Right. So I've internalized it. It's not just because of the color of my skin. It's the person inside my skin. That doesn't mean I can't challenge it, but there is nothing that could have exempted me from having to deal with it, right? right. And the same with gender, you can resist all you want, the gender binary, you have to resist it. You right. can't move through life without dealing with it, right. right? It's the same with white supremacy. So to say that's just my personality, right?
1: It's very helpful. Your personality has been shaped and molded and influenced by white supremacy. And I think many people get stuck there and mm-hmm. so stuck in the shame and the guilt. And the, if it's inside of me, then what's the point? How can I change it? If it's who I actually am, and this is why I wrote Me and White Supremacy*, because it's about reckoning with how does it show up for you, not for all those people out there, but for you in your daily life. And I know many people go through a stage of grieving almost, of understanding who I am is not who I thought that I was. And I've got this thing inside of me. It's how my brain has been shaped. It's how my values have been shaped. It's how my personality has been shaped. How do I reckon with that? How have you well, reckoned with that?
0: And I, I'm going to assume that you would not and could not have written that book if you didn't think change was possible, right. right? So Whenever I go to hopelessness and discouragement, and trust me, I mean, I think you would know, dealing with white people on racism every day brings up a lot of <laughs> hopelessness and discouragement, but I can't go there, right? Because how does that function? Right. Yeah, give us. Give up, stop talking about it, stop doing it, and then you perfectly protect everything. Yeah, so, right, so, how you as a black woman navigate hope and hopelessness is different. I, Absolutely. I would imagine. For me as a white person, I can't go there. I want to talk a little bit about shame. Yeah. Any narrative that white people go to very quickly and easily, for me, is a red flag. Right? And shame is one we go to very quickly. Very
1: easily, easily. very quickly.
0: Yeah. Even more than guilt. Like, shame is better than guilt because shame is a little more precious. It invokes a little more sympathy, a little more victimhood. Oh, you feel shame. Nobody should feel shame. Yeah. So, I've been doing things lately in my workshops where I, I have a white person turn to another white person and just share on a daily basis. What percentage of your day do you feel racial shame? Mm. Be honest. Okay. Zero. Right. Two percent. And I kind of facetiously say, yeah, I'm on my way into Whole Foods and I have to step over a black man in the gutter. I feel a rush of shame. But then I get into Whole Foods. Right. And cherries are on sale. You know what I mean? It's only in a flash usually when we're in some kind of session to challenge racism. Right. And so that tells me that it is functioning problematic, Right, right, right. Shame's a drag. It's not a good feeling, but build your capacity to bear it and you'll probably move through it faster.
1: Right. Right. It's something that I know I get frustrated with, but also... I understand, so because you know I understand that we are all one race, the human race. We do react to situations very similarly. When we feel that who we are, our identity is being challenged, it doesn't matter who we are. We all have a similar response to that, and we all have a, you know a similar-ish process for how we work through that. And at the same time, I know that when it's in a situation where it's a me and a white person or a person of color and a white person just because of the function of white supremacy it's just acting out very differently and it has a different kind of impact and it is definitely i'm, I'm really glad that you highlighted it because it is something that i think is is used as when i have seen critics of anti racism and anti racist education yeah. something that they go to very easily is well you you know they're just trying to make white people feel ashamed of being white
0: yeah.
1: And that's this very terrible thing that must
0: not ripen. Right. right. So what's the answer? Let's not talk about it, right? right? And I often say, what social problem or ill would anybody ever say the best way to deal with that social problem is to never speak of it. Right. Let's not talk about suicide. Let's not talk about drug addiction. Let's not talk about eating disorders or sexual assault. I mean nobody would say that, right? But when it comes to racism The answer is never to speak of it. Well, that's the answer if you want to protect it. Right. You know, consciously or not.
1: How critics often go to that as Uh, a, that's their main (laughs) criticism. This is just a scam. This
0: is just brainwashing white people to be ashamed of themselves. I would think listening to me, you see that I'm quite clear that I've been conditioned into white supremacy. And I don't struggle with guilt. I really don't. Because, you know, I would never have chosen to be conditioned into white supremacy, you know, but I was, I had no choice. I was guilt is just not useful. It is a, I think, natural part of a process. That's right. We're moving through it. But if it's functioning to say, I can't do this, then you need to challenge it. Yes. Now, while I don't struggle with guilt, I absolutely feel responsible for the result of my conditioning. That's right. Right. So now that I know have it and know it, what am I doing with it? It's like Howard Zinn says: there's no neutral place on a moving train. The default of the society yeah. is white supremacy and racism, and so there is, you know, to not do anything about it is to support it. Right.
1: Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um. We were talking before we hit record about how white supremacy functions outside of the US. And I had shared some, you know, examples of what I experienced on my holiday, but also just, you know, my experiences growing up and studying in in the UK. I know that it functions there. But it doesn't matter if a person is from Canada, from the UK, from somewhere in Europe, there's always this excuse of, well, we're not like America though. American, that's where you have a lot of
0: racism,
1: you know, in the US. Right. How have you seen that play out?
0: Well, the first thing to understand is that white supremacy circulates globally. It's been exported globally. It impacts the, you know, the entire world. It may have been an idea created in everywhere I've ever been. Every movie I see advertised are U.S. movies, right? All of our culture has been exported. Yes. And everywhere I go outside the U.S., I hear the exact same thing from white people. Right? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, because we're going to get to what I hear from people
2: of color.
0: Yeah, that this is an American problem. That's one. Two, you don't know the culture here, so it's not legitimate for you to speak about it. Right. Um, and, and everywhere I go, people of color are, oh my God, help us. Oh my God, this is right out of your book. It's textbook. So the specific history might be different, but the outcome is white supremacy, white fragility Mm -hmm. and hostility and suffering and inequality for people of color, right? Mm -hmm. And in some of these cultures like the UK and Canada, I think the less they talk about it, the higher is the white fragility, right? The less capacity, the less skills, and therefore the more hostile an environment for people of color to bring their experience and reality to the table, right? And I actually don't think I need to be an expert on every other culture. I do my research before I go. Yeah. But what I say to white people is get some skin in the game, right? And figure out what this looks like in your context. That's on you. That's not on me. Take this framework, this basic framework, right. the clear, empirically able to be shown outcome. Right. right? Change your question from if, White people's number one question about racism is if you are or you aren't. And as, as long as the question is if, the answer will be no. Right. Change it to how. How is racism manifesting in my life, in my work, right? How does it manifest in my context? Right. Right? It may be different than it manifests in yours, but it manifests.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think it's, and, so, it's so important for people in all countries where there is a white dominant or white supremacy is very dominant to understand, to study the racial history of that country and to look at what is going on with, you know, the situation with migrants and immigrants, like what is happening there and how is that shaping racial stereotypes? It's so interesting that you said you hear from the white people in those countries, there's nothing to see here. And the people of color were like, oh my gosh, this exact thing you wrote is in the book. And I had a very similar experience that when I was traveling, I got to meet up with a number of women of color who I know online and got to you know, have coffee with them, sit down with them and sort of hear about their experiences and the things that they are experiencing, the things that have happened to them. It's like the white people who live there would say, no, that, that could never happen. That would never happen that happened now that happened in 2019 and it's like yeah it's happening you know just because those people are not feeling safe enough to speak up or because it's not a national conversation in the way it is in the USA or at that level that it is in the US doesn't mean that it's not happening that people of color are not experiencing racial aggressions every single day and having to monitor themselves and minimize themselves in order just to get through the day.
0: I feel frustrated when I hear you say, gosh, I had no idea that was happening. And I, I'm white, right? I just wish, I want the, your white listeners to to just take this in. The impact of you just like marveling at your surprise that this happens, that's a microaggression, right? What that tells, I would imagine, uh, Layla, it's like, I have never had to understand your reality. And then you have to be reminded of that. You have to look at that in the face, right? And you have to explain and convince. It's maddening, right? right. And it's part of being white is to be able to move through the world with just complete ignorance, covered up as innocence. White people are not innocent mm-hmm. on race. I think it's a, it's a kind of willful refusal to see or to know because people are calling you've been telling us forever right the information's everywhere right. you know. you know the number one question i get when i give a talk is what do i do and that question also really bothers me
1: <laughs> that's why i just say me and white supremacy
0: book.com <laughs> Oh, no, well, no, thank God now I have that. But I, I wrote about this in the forward, right? It's just like, I've never thought about this in my life. I've just listened to you for one hour. Now hand me the answer. Right. Just be in the process for a few minutes here. That's right. And also, for me to just hand it to you, like, as if I could. Right. Because even my well, book, Handing to
1: actually isn't the answer. You actually have to do the work. You yeah, actually, you make it work, right? You know, you actually have to like dig deep inside of yourself and go through this process. And we all know that people buy books, not everyone reads the book they buy. When it's a book that you have to work to, yes, you know, to really, it's not enough to say I bought the book or I read the book. Right. You know, you have to do the book. You have to actually involve yourself in the process. And that has nothing to do with showing to the world, look at me, I'm trying my best. Look at me, I'm making an effort because that again is just putting yourself at the center.
0: Yeah. I can imagine Americans going to other countries and saying, oh, we don't have racism in America. I mean, because so many white people say there's no more racism. Right. And, and So just take that in, right? Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know that, right? right. Now, but, you know, maybe when you're in Canada, you change it to indigenous, right? right? In the U.S., I've centered on anti-blackness, mm-hmm. right? In Australia, look at the history of the aboriginal people, right? right? In the U.K. and Germany, well, in the U.K., take a look at who. where do you think we purchased, enslaved,
1: right? Right, right. right. Who colonized all those countries?
0: Oh my god, India, right? right. Right. When I watched Downton Abbey, I'm always thinking, I wonder where their wealth came from. Right, right. Right? But also with the anti-immigrant sentiment, right? But if you don't understand racism, right, if you have no awareness of it, if you don't talk about it, if you don't look at it, if you're shocked when Layla tells you about an experience of hers. It means one, you have no critical thinking, right? Two, you also have no skills at all to navigate a pretty complex, nuanced, and uncomfortable conversation. And three, you have no emotional capacity to endure the discomfort of the conversation. This is why so-called innocence is not benign. Right. Right, the impact of that—all of those inabilities—is you know. Again, I repeat, you can't bring your authentic self to me because I can't hold it. Right. And my thought about the walking on eggshells—I mean, one, the entitlement of that—you mean I have to watch what I say? Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my God! Like right. you, you may have to give up a little tiny bit of something here. Right. Yes. Right. But there's a difference between carefulness and thoughtfulness. Right. Be thoughtful, but carefulness. And here's another story with Deborah again. There used to be this exercise we would do in these trainings where you would pair up with someone and you would choose uh, an oppressed group that neither of you belong to. Okay. And then give your first uncensored thought, right? So maybe another white person I would pair up, we to do black people. So I would say, black woman, black man. African-Americans. And then they would just say their first uncensored thought. And you can right. imagine what comes out. Right. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. So I was debriefing this exercise with Deborah, and I'm like, that exercise makes me so uncomfortable. Like I know I have all that stuff in me, but I don't want to loosen it up because what if it just, you know, I think this, this is a really classic fear of a lot of white people. We're just going to blurt some horrible thing out. Right. And I said, I, I just thought that it was more important to be careful about right. that. And right. she just at me for you know, this long pause, and she said, "Robin, do you think we can't tell when right. you're being when you're being careful?" Right. What do you think white people look like mm. when they're being careful mm. around black people? Mm. And I just it was one of those moments where you just go, "Oh my god, right. what do we look like? Stiff, right? Inauthentic, right?" Racist, quite frankly. Right. Cold, right. It right. feels awful. Then you watch me over there with all my white friends over by the water cooler, laughing, right. joking, relaxed. Yeah, no. Carefulness is not what we're looking for. Thoughtfulness. Right. Right. The ability to repair when we step in it. Right. Right. Um, I've had so many people of color say to me, "We don't expect you to be free of your racist conditioning." and we're not going to give up on you because you have racist conditioning we'd really be isolated <laughs> if we did that but what we're looking for we're looking for something and that is where can we go with you in those moments when it surfaces and if we can't go there with you we're not having an authentic relationship yes
1: yeah. because there isn't an expectation that we think as a I'll speak for myself as a black person I don't hold an expectation that if you have read all of these books and taken all of these courses and done all of this work, that you will never do anything racist, that you will never say anything racist. I want to talk about this next, but I know that you've been in this work for 20 years. I have no expectation, Robin, that you have now reached the status of exceptionalism where you can never say something out of your mouth or do something that was you know, unconsciously racist. But what I do know is that if it does happen, when it does happen, Mm -hmm. I can have that, when it does happen, I can Mm -hmm. have that conversation with you in a very honest way without having to try to protect your feelings, right? Without having to use, you know, ways to explain what you've done, which actually minimize the harm that has been caused to me at, you know, so that I can protect you, that we can really go deep and have that conversation and that the repair that will be done through it, because I understand that you've been in this work for a long time. So you understand the level of authenticity that's required in that repair will be so much more real than if you're somebody who's really grappling to come to terms with this and is really just doing the work at the surface. I've had many people who've emailed me, messaged me to say, you know, well, I have been in this work since, you know, X year. And I'm like, but the way that you're showing up tells me, I don't know how you've been doing it, but you haven't been doing it. You may have been a diversity trainer. There's this great essay that I quote in Minority Supremacy by Ellen Pence. And I think it's from the book all the women are white, all the Blacks are men, but some of us are brave. And she's a white feminist, writing about her coming to an understanding that even though she understood that she wasn't racist like her father, who was outwardly racist, and she would save her money and send it to Martin Luther King Jr., and she would go to the Black church, she couldn't understand why still women of color were saying to her, but you're still you're still white. You're still racist. You're still part of the the problem. She couldn't understand why. And it wasn't until she was able to really listen to the women of color and begin doing her work that she could see the same way that white men would treat her as a white woman is the same way she was treating people of color and black people. And it takes that analogy to make that connection. But that level of like, Even though she had been working alongside women of color feminists, that proximity to those people and those relationships did not mean that they would necessarily have been safe with her when her white fragility surfaced because she had no understanding.
0: Yeah, you know, sexism has been an incredibly effective way in for me because I identify as a feminist from very, very, very young. It's very easy to see where one is oppressed themselves. Right. But I was in my thirties before I recognized how I colluded with somebody else's oppression, right? right? That question of how does it function has been really useful. But also when I can't figure out a piece, of, let's say you give me some feedback and I feel defensive. I just, in my mind, change the roles and imagine that a man is saying to me, I've just called in a man in on sexism and he's, and I usually just instantly, Oh my God, I get it. It's why I challenge white people who say we need to feel safe in order to talk about racism. Like seriously, if there was a group of men who I was trying to get them to talk about sexism and they say, well, we, we need to feel safe," safer. I would just be like F you basically. Right. right like seriously. Right, right. So that is a really useful way in, but I want to say something to all the white feminists out there. Stop using sexism as a way to protect your racism.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. You know, because so many white women use sexism as a way out. Yeah. Right.
1: And but a way it, to guilt women of color into a sort of solidarity, which doesn't necessarily exist. Yeah. We shouldn't be fighting against each other. We should be supporting each other as women. And it's like, but you're not understanding what's actually going on here. Yes.
0: So that was a thought. Another thought is what you were talking about when people write you and say, I've been doing this work for a long time. I call that credentialing. Right. <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> oh my God. And in my workshops, I make uh, white people turn to the person next to them and just answer, How do you credential yourself? Right. We all do it. And if I told you that they notice when we're doing it, right. how do you think it's actually impacting the conversation? What do you think is actually going on when they're noticed that we're credentialing, right? And if there's people of color, I have them answer, how have you noticed white people credentialing and does it work, right? But one of the things I say when somebody says, because sometimes people will try to credential themselves with me by saying, I read your book. Yes. And I just say, well, how will people of color know that you've read my book? Yeah. You know, and I just wait, right? Like, how would people of color know that you've been in diversity training for all these years if you didn't tell them? Right. Well, I think if you... Had truly internalized this understanding, you wouldn 't need to tell them right. because it would come through and how you were precisely and the very thing that you think is showing that you get it is again I, we're white people are we 're so unqualified to determine how well we 're doing because we 're so invested in not seeing
2: yeah.
0: where we 're not doing well I know you get this question a
1: lot because you are a white person doing anti racism work. How do you answer the question around your positionality as a person holding white privilege doing this work? And how do you hold yourself accountable so as not to slip into white exceptionalism?
0: Yeah, it is the master's tools dilemma, Audre Lorde's beautiful quote. I am so clear that I center whiteness in my work, that when I stand on a stage in front of a thousand people granted credibility and authority, yeah. like every almost every other white person who stands in front, right. granted, I am reinforcing whiteness, conscious or not, right? right? And to not use this platform, to not use this position, to break with white solidarity, to expose whiteness because it stays protected by not being named or exposed. And as an insider, I think you, you understand whiteness and white fragility to a degree I never will.
2: Right.
0: And as an insider, I have an understanding that you can't have. That's right. And we need all those pieces, right? Yes. The tension is in that both end. Yeah. And the way I think about it is to not use this platform is to really be white. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I want to be a little less white. So what does that mean to me? It doesn't mean be more Italian American. Right. Okay. Doesn't mean be more ethnic. To be less white for me means be a little less oppressive,
1: mm-hmm. a little
0: less arrogant and ignorant and complacent and silent and be more humble and open and vulnerable and courageous, yeah. right? So, so that's one piece. And I name that at the opening, right? I mean, I, I try to be transparent about that tension. I'm also really clear that while I, I hope my work is valuable and affirming for people of color, I'm speaking to white people as a white person. Right. I also, in terms of accountability financially, donate a percentage of my annual income each year to racial justice organizations led by people of color. All my public workshops, whatever it is that I am paid, that exact amount goes to local racial justice organizations led by people of color. I try to promote the work of people of color, co-lead if I'm doing longer work. So so those are some of the financial ways that I seek to be accountable. And I have started to ask white people, again, turn to the person next to you, given this, given what we've just laid out and made visible about white supremacy, what are your current accountability practices?
2: Yeah.
0: And of course, be honest, because most white people, the answer is there aren't any, none, right? Right, right? Part of mine are, I have white people in my life who have a strong analysis, who I definitely work through. I go cry with them before right. my repair, right? I go, help me, I'm struggling. I want to think through something. But there are also people of color in my life who have agreed to be there for me in that way, and I pay them for their time. Mm. Or I offer to pay them for their time. Some of them are dear friends and will not take that, who aren't going to accept it. Then I donate to a racial justice organization for the time spent getting their expertise consulting services. Yes. Right? We have to start understanding what you're giving. Right. Right. And not just, hey, I, I'm sure you get emails where it's like, hey, I'm just wondering about this, right. you know, I just want to pick your brain. Right, right. I'd love to have coffee and hear what you think. I'd never offer to pay my white friends who have this analysis. But there's a, such a history of the uncompensated labor of people of color and such a sense of entitlement. Yes. Right.
1: And to that time and to that energy and to that... History yeah. is that pain, yes.
0: And that emotional labor and that psychic labor and that...
1: And, and the that intellectual
0: wh- labor. Oh my goodness, right? Yes. And, and what you risk, because I might say I want it, I actually see it as a kind of colonialism, right? Like, okay, give me the fruits of your labor, right? but let's face it, I don't agree with that one. Right. I agree with these, but I don't I don't think so much. I don't think this applies in my unique situation or I'm still positioning myself as the qualified arbiter of whether your thinking is legitimate, right? And you know that you're up against that when I ask you for your thinking. Right. So there's just so much that goes into that. Right. We're back to my opening story of how am I supposed to know about racism if you won't tell me? Right. Right. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think it's so important. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think it's so important to acknowledge the kind of tension of being an anti-racist educator who is white and everything that comes with that. And because of that acknowledgement, you've also made very clear the ways in which you stay accountable. There is no perfectionism in this. And there are Criticisms that may be valid or not valid, or you know that there's all kinds of nuances to them but I, I really appreciate what you said about the fact that you understand you do actually have this platform and that you feel that this is the way for you to be less oppressive and I think that's really important that you said that because I know that there are so many white people who come into this awakening of their racial superiority and their positionality in white supremacy. And the first thing that they want to do is jump into leading, training, leading, teaching, writing a book, getting a contract on something and then becoming the face of the movement. And that to me is just white supremacy continuing to function. You talked to me before we hit record. You've actually been in this work for a very long time before getting to New York Times bestseller Yes, 25 25 years that you've put in the work in yourself and behind the scenes where you didn't have the fame, the kind of public exposure that you have now. As you're moving more into that, I mean, this is your third book, so it's not your first time writing a book, but it is the first one that's really shut up in the way that it has. And it came from this term that you coined a long time ago as well.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Right? How have you been sort of navigating being in a position of more public exposure and more people knowing who you are, being more familiar with your work, and being seen as this leader who is also white in social justice work? How do you navigate that? And there might not be a clear answer, so I'm not looking for it. This is how I do it. Step one.
0: (laughs) In some ways, I think the community keeps you humble because. Yes, I get a lot of accolades and and I get a lot of really beautiful affirmations, and I am now paid well. And wow, do you have to have a thick skin? The public critiques, the you know national news stories that call you out is a lot that comes aver- with it. Yeah, yes, I think the average person cringes if they get you know one evaluation from their manager. Now you know have the you know New York Times critique you and critique your work right? Right,
2: right
0: and you get it from both the right and the left and right. like you I get shockingly awful emails which you know you kind of just set aside yeah. but critiques from the left you know and critiques from people of color you know that's of course much harder
2: yeah
0: but you do have to engage with it and grapple with it as part of the accountability yeah. and this is one of the kind of deep challenges of being white in this work is where is that place where you you say I need to take this and I need to learn and grow from it, but this is theirs and I don't need to take that. Well, that's tricky across race, right? Because I'm using my white brain, if you will, to make that determination. And yet I've been doing this work long enough to know that people of color have issues too, right? We're all confused by racism. And so I almost have to be able to stay centered, take what I can and leave the rest, or I probably would be immobilized.
1: Right. From, you know, a Black person's perspective, there isn't even a a single monolithic Black experience of you and your work, that this is how all Black people and all people of color and Indigenous people feel about Robin DiAngelo and her work. Everyone has their own perspective and way that they're engaging with it or not engaging with it. And so, yeah, I, I hear you about having to stay centered. Do you surround yourself with black people and people of color in your sort of inner circle who are in the work who you can Definitely. Yeah. Yes.
0: To this day, Deborah and Darlene are two of those people. Mm -hmm. Do you know Rezma Menekims? Yes, I do. And I
1: actually he sent me his book. It's on my to read list. Yes. You would love an interview
0: with him. Yes. Yeah. I want to make sure um, yeah. I
1: read the book though first before I invite him.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, he is beloved to me, and he is someone who I can also check in with. And so there, there's other people in my life that you wouldn't necessarily know. Right. And I'm aware that there are people who don't think white people should talk about this stuff, or lead this stuff, or be paid to lead this stuff. Right. I, I don't don't agree with that, but but that that's hard, and you come up against that. What I think is interesting is. I doubt Brene Brown ever gets asked what she's doing with her royalties. Right. Right. Well, Brene Brown doesn't talk about race, right? Right. She should. I don't know how you can talk about shame without talking about racism. Right.
1: right. But and, no, and honestly, her work is referenced by a lot of white women. When it oh,
0: comes I know. No, they, yes. they <laughs> let me just say, I think she's, really good at what she does. Yeah. But I think the fundamental message is kind of accepting yourself and within it. it she started to do maybe two minutes on privilege, but it's clear yeah, that that's I not... Would
1: really like to talk to her about
0: this. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, she's good at what she does, but when people like, oh, you should check her out. I, I am always like, I think she fills stadiums because she doesn't challenge you on race. She right. kind of tells you that you, you're okay the way you are kind of stuff. But if she began to, then maybe she'd begin to get questions like, you know, why are you being paid? And I just think that's really interesting, right? Like, I don't know how any person can talk about anything without talking about how race informs it. Right. But as long as you don't talk about race, you're not going to be challenged on making a living. Right. So I, know, I just think that's also worth noticing,
1: Yeah. Although there is that. I think the difference, however, is that when you are leading or seen to be leading in an area from which you benefit inherently because of your privilege, that question always has to be grappled with. I don't necessarily have an answer, but I think it's some of the things that you've talked about, especially around financial accountability are really important uh, for people to understand because otherwise it just gets taken up as Another thing to right. just make money from and just to propel yourself into a position of leadership, which clearly you are not doing this for that because this this work is really hard yes, <laughs> and you've been well. in it for a really long time. And there it are several points in which you could have yeah. given up and gone into something which would have been much easier for you as a white person.
0: Even today, there's moments when I'm just not doing this anymore, but I, right. I can't not but right. Somebody once asked me or recently asked me, like if you know, what do you wish you knew or something? And I, and I thought, I wish all those years I was taking all that abuse from white people. And I it doesn't compare to the right. abuse meet out. But we can be awful to other white people yes. who break with white solidarity. That's why most yeah. white people don't break right. with white solidarity, right? Right. I wish somebody had just said, hang in there, you are gonna be able to lay this out. Yeah. <laughs> and What I hope my work does, one piece of it is, make it harder for white people to run this devastating nonsense with no accountability. Because now we have language. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because the language piece is so important, both for people of color and for white people. So to have a book cold white fragility on the New York Times bestseller list, for me, really matters that we're naming it. It's something that we name. I know that when I was going through the, connecting with a publisher for my book, I know that there was a particular publisher who was like, would you consider changing the name of your book, essentially to make it less scary and less confrontational? Although they did not use that language, they used more business kind of language. That was essentially the message. And for me, it's so important to have the language to be able to name, because if you can't name it, it's that thing that you were talking about right at the beginning with your mother not being able to speak the cancer and not allowing any of you to speak it. It's this boogeyman that we can't talk about, that we pretend doesn't exist. And yet that continues to have this violent impact every single day. So having the language, being able to say that's actually white fragility, what you're doing right now, not in a name calling way or just to, you know, but to identify this is what that means. And here's actually an article, a book that talks about and explains right. to you what it is and how it shows up.
0: Yeah. Even reading the New York Times, like what, what the list is, you have to like, well, what's that? Right. Every time I get that in a, a list <laughs> right. and someone the, you know what do you do? And then I wrote a book. Well, what, what's it called? I mean, those moments. I have to say, white fragility, and then right. I have to. It pushes me also.
1: Yes, it pushes me with my book when people say, "What do you yeah, write about?" Right. Uh, white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it it's pushing against. You're absolutely right. Dominant culture and keeping things comfortable and safe for white people. But yeah, thank you so much for that conversation because it's just. I think it's something that. I think why it's so important for me to have these conversations, this is now the second season of Good Ancestor Podcast. In the first season, I had two white people and everyone else was people of color. It's the same with the second season. And it's because so much of my audience is white, not all of them, but a large proportion are coming into this work because of me and white supremacy. And so I think it's valuable to have conversations with people who are in this work, whether they are educators or people just in it and grappling with it and having vocal conversations about it. I think it's so important to sit with the awkwardness and that there is no clear cut answers. This is how it's going to be because so many people are looking for that. So many people are looking for, just tell me what to do. Just tell me how it's supposed to be. Robin's supposed to give the standard answer for all white people. I, Layla, I'm supposed to give the standard answer for all black people, especially all black women. And it just, doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. And this continues to be, I know for me, a journey of understanding more and more of the layers of it and the nuance of it and the complexities of it. And learning to be with that without trying to fix it and make it all into straight lines but just trying as best as possible to navigate it with integrity.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're back to the master's tools. You and I are inside white supremacy trying to Absolutely. challenge it. Absolutely. So it's messy and it's that both end of challenging it and reproducing it. And But I just know to not challenge it. And I, I often end my sessions by saying to the white people, you know, Part of being white is that you could just leave today and say, oh, that was an interesting session. That was an interesting podcast and right. do nothing different. And honestly, right. most of you aren't going to do anything different. Can you be nice? Right. Which, by the way, is the title of my next book, Niceness is Not Anti-Racism. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Brilliant. Part of being white is that you have that choice, but here's what I want you to do for me if you're going to make that choice. I want you to go home and I want you to look yourself in the mirror, look yourself right in the eyes. And I want you to say, I choose to collude with white supremacy Mm. and then carry on, but let's do it with honesty. Right. That's how I see it. To not take up this work is to collude. There's just no neutral place. And let me also add, (laughs) it's the most transformative, liberating work you could ever do. It's not awful. it's painful at times, for sure, but it on every level, nothing is going to push a white person like getting engaged in this work. What's the point of being alive? Right. in my point of view, if I am not growing and stretching and contributing?
1: This is <laughs> such a good place to end what has been an incredible conversation. I want to ask you my final question, Robin. First of all, I want to thank you for this conversation and for writing White Fragility, for supporting the me and white supremacy work and for bringing your full self to this conversation. Our final question is, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor?
0: That at the end of my life, right, one that at each night when I go to bed, I can ask myself, were you in your integrity today? Did you align your actual behavior with what you profess to value?
2: Right.
0: Right. And at the end of my life, you know, did your life in some way contribute to a more just world? Somebody recently, someone from the right, called me a social justice warrior. And I thought, man, they should come up with a better term than that, because there's, there's nothing about that term that bothers me. What? If my tombstone should say, here lies a social justice warrior, I will be in good keeping in my integrity.
1: <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, Robin. You're welcome. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Good ancestor Podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.